0: Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect of Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently.
1: Parth, you were were out at a hackathon last week, how was that?
2: It was pretty good. Um, I'm actually taking a few days off uh, as we speak, so I'm, I'm out of office now. I'm in Miami, but uh, I just got done with the with the week-long hackathon, which I was telling you about, at Cornell. And um, uh, so my project was mostly on MEV, so I was working on how MEV would change after the merge and uh, some implementation of PBS, which is uh, proposer Builder uh, Separation. So um, it's kind of funny, the joke of the summer camp was front running. <laughs> so everyone was just talking about MEV, tons of discussions on flashbots, but uh, overall a really, a really good week.
1: Excellent. Glad to hear it. Um, it is definitely the season of vacations and we have Ryan who's actually out of the office today. So uh, we'll catch up with him next week. Before we really kick off into some of the stories that we were covering for the week, have you been following uh, the market trends lately? And it uh, seems to me, just watching some of the uh, layer ones that are competitors to Ethereum, that they're seeing a bit of a bid this week. I don't know if that's because we're heading into the merge or, or why, but um, just an interesting uh, thing I've picked up on. Any ideas or any takes?
3: Yeah, I mean, a little bit of a, a market bounce in general, but with the merge coming up, it's going to be interesting to follow how alternative layer ones, such as Solana on you know, the list sort of goes on, how they perform relative to ETH uh, if the merge is successful you know, unsuccessful, delayed, et cetera. I think all of that will impact price action of these different smart ca- contract platforms.
2: Yeah, personally for me, I actually don't look at prices. <laughs> I feel like it just doesn't, it, it it does not reflect what the value of the of the layer one is. So that's just my take.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good way to look at it because you're really looking at utility and, and what can be done with these technologies. So I, I, I like that. I just find it interesting to uh, to look at from a reference point over time. I wanted to kick off this week uh, with a quick story about um, another traditional financial services player coming into the market. I read last week that BlackRock has come forward with a partnership with Coinbase where customers of BlackRock's Aladdin platform will now have an integration so that institutional clients can access uh, Bitcoin through a partnership with Coinbase. And it seems like in this case, it's it's an Institutional software service provider, minimizing some friction involved with the investment process. So, Jack, I don't know if you if you brought up on this one too, but it seems like it's uh, you know another validation that institutions are indeed interested in, in looking for some exposure.
3: Yeah, I mean, just more generally, I think one of the issues that has always faced traditional allocators looking at this space is, of course, you know, the education front and understanding the different parts of, of this asset class. But I think the ability to own these assets through traditional financial services providers, and this is just, you know, another one uh, sort of coming out and saying, hey, we we think that there's maybe something potentially here and there's interest from our institutional allocators. Um, and again, setting up partnerships with these crypto native firms. That's a theme that is probably going to continue into the future. Is if you haven't, you know, built infrastructure yourself yet, you know, partnering is probably the thing that makes the most sense from the perspective of being able to get a product to market um, to be able to compete in this space.
1: Yeah. So we'll we'll see how This continues to evolve in terms of the broader industry, what other traditional players may begin to uh, provide on ramps or access to these markets. But I wanted to uh, cover one more thing on the regulatory front before we dive into some of the more interesting DeFi news, because this has been a very, very active week. Uh, We saw that the Senate Agricultural Committee leadership has proposed a, a bipartisan bill that would classify both Bitcoin and Ethereum as commodities. And this is pretty interesting because we have the leadership of uh, Senators Stabenow from Michigan and Booseman from Arkansas, who were cl- trying to essentially clarify that classifying these two assets in this way can ensure that we have regulatory clarity around them. And these two assets, these two blockchains currently represent about two thirds of the value in the space. So I know that there's a lot of demand for uh, transparency and increased Clarity around the U.S. regulatory environment, but uh, I found that pretty, uh, pretty interesting and something that we'll watch because it's one of a number of bills coming out of Congress related to digital assets.
2: Before we actually leave the topic of traditional finance, I actually have a different take. Um, So um, and again, this is my personal opinion, but I think traditional finance um, as of now has sort of a mindset of thinking about crypto uh, specifically for trading as a speculative asset but I think crypto is so much more. Uh, that is just a small part of it. Crypto is about decentralized applications and wallets and giving more, more freedom to users. So I'm actually optimistic and excited to see uh, to see some of these big players also launch retail-facing applications, not geared towards trading only.
3: I feel like it's one of those things, so many of the use cases of of digital assets are still sort of unknown or very nascent, or there's tons of competition and so you know to your point parth uh, people just looking objectively from an outsider's vantage see you know speculative trading with a lot of these assets whereas you know you you discuss like i don't even like to look at the price of the assets i like to look at the networks themselves and what's being built because over the long term that's probably ultimately what's going to matter here uh, and i think that there's certainly something to that the the problem is and i think this is the problem that regulators are dealing with is well then what are you know what are these things and do they fit into the traditional molds of securities and commodities or do they not and i think a lot of times you know pol- politicians and regulators aren't able to just say we don't know and right now sort of the delay in providing regulatory clarity i think is a little bit of a we we don't know what some of these assets are and it's hard to make those definite you know definitive decisions
1: that then become you know precedents in in legal cases Personally, I, I agree as well, because you're talking about the utility, right? And we've talked before, and, and lots of people talk about the fact that we're trying to, in some cases, apply rules that were written for a different subject. And fit for purpose is truly yet to really be appreciated, I think. Back to your comments part about the network, the network effects. What can people do as a result of having this technology available to them? So I, I definitely still feel like there is some confusion about how to approach it. and. Most people don't have the the time or candidly the interest to dive as deep as as others. So I really appreciate you bringing that perspective back up uh, and helping to sort of contrast the market view as opposed to the utility view. Speaking of utilities, you know, wallets are a big component of the blockchain ecosystem and how we manage and utilize our assets. And there was a pretty interesting uh, experience in the Solana ecosystem last week and uh, part. It, I'm wondering if you can share your take on, on what happened, and then perhaps Jack and I could jump in on some of the things that we've been reading about, but uh, let's talk about what happened with Slope.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so first of all, this wasn't a Solana hack. It was actually a Slope hack, uh, but Slope is a decentralized exchange, and it also is a wallet provider. So what I can do is I can install the Slope app, and I can generate a public-private key pair. They were pretty much logging private keys in plain text on the centralized server, in fact, a similar issue was discovered in, in near wallet as well, which they uh, corrected immediately once they got once they got to know about it. That's pretty much it. So that's the that's the Solana story. I know there was like a lot of uh, there was a lot of chatter um, when 7,500 7, wallets were getting drained, and uh, people just didn't know what what was happening, uh, and there were all sort of all all kinds of uh, hypotheses. But uh, it's good to know that we have finally nailed down that it's one specific application. Uh, which was resulting in these private key leaks.
3: Is there something here uh, to the effect of, we say when you're interacting with different platforms that it's trustless, but in reality, like I don't audit the lines of code from the various hot wallets that I've used, or I don't have the technical expertise to either. uh, And I'm necessarily trusting, you know, a set of developers. Parth, how many of these different hot wallets are open source versus you know closed source and you're trusting the you know the developers
2: that's a fantastic point because uh, I'm I'm an, uh, I'm a huge open source advocate and the slope wallet was pretty much closed source so open source is a double edged sword right so at, you you have a lot of people who are white hat hackers who are trying to make the the open source software more secure But at the same time, since it's open source, it's also pretty vulnerable. And if you are a black hat hacker, you can pretty much, you pretty much know what's in the code. I'm on the fence about this, but I think a lot of people had this been open source, maybe this could have been avoided. And maybe there were, had there been more audits, this could have been avoided, but it's, it's kind of hard to tell.
1: I I have to tell you guys, it's really interesting for me when I see a Twitter spaces pop up and you know, hundreds of people dial in and then you get to participate in and and be a spectator to watching an industry try to triage an event like this. And you're getting real-time updates from people who are sharing their perspectives. Now, of course, you have to take it with a grain of salt, but we heard the community trying to help each other uh, protect assets or identify the root causes. And like anything else in the heat of the moment, you, you need to understand that, information hasn't yet been verified so you have to listen in and, and think about it from your own perspective form your own opinions but uh, as someone who has had an operational background and work to try and address uh, things in the market whether it's the global financial crisis or otherwise you can't help but see some parallels but i find it truly interesting that it's community sourced and back to your point around open source software a lot of like-minded people trying to make sure that this industry and these ecosystems grow in a healthy way. And you know when there are growing pains, they're working together to address them.
3: There was a bit of like crowdsourced investigative journalism on on like Tuesday night where everybody was trying to figure out, okay, this person, you know, their funds are missing. They used, you know, this application, and then sort of piecing them together to figure out what's the common denominator amongst all of these. Because at one point, you know, there was there was ETH being taken from, from wallets or suspected to be taken from wallets, right? And then people were like, okay, well, is this Just a Solana issue? Is it a Solana you know, wallet provider's issue? Is it an ETH issue? And there was like so many things swirling around until ultimately everybody figured out that all of these wallets, you know, that were having issues were tied to the same, you know, slope uh, provider, and then able to get to the bottom of what was actually happening.
1: Jack, one of my one of the favorite things that I, I heard on that call was someone literally saying, "Okay, there's a pattern, and the pattern is every 20 seconds." it's X number of wallets and it's this. And then someone else speculating saying, the pattern just changed. Maybe the hacker is listening in on this call. They were going by like in order as opposed to in order of value. And it was just a systemic approach. But you had those people who were digging into the details and trying to help each other. And um, that to me was just really fascinating because you're right, uh, crowdsourced investigative journalism is a good way to describe it.
2: Yeah. And uh, personally for me, the... uh... The the key takeaways were uh, just how important it is to keep yourself safe. Uh, It's really important to use a hardware wallet in these situations, because I know uh, some of the hot wallets were mostly affected. And it's always good practice to have a hardware wallet where you can do random DeFi stuff and then one which is where you store uh, some part of your wealth. And not that it's fully related, but for most people who use decentralized applications, it's also really important to regularly revoke permission on the decentralized applications you use, um, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's good to sort of know what kind of uh, good practices are out there. It's also important to do some sort of key rotation. So so if I I, I should be generating a new set of private keys once in three months or four months, and uh, it's I can almost see a business which helps you do key rotation uh, to be safe. So that's just that's just my take.
3: And does get at the fact that it's, you know, everything here in this space isn't that simple. I mean, we spend most of, if not our entire works, you know, days working in this space and still could have used the Slope Wallet at some point and, and had a, a small portion of funds on it or something, right? I'm not saying you know, we we did or anything, but like, it's not inconceivable that that can happen to somebody that spends all their time in this space. And so it does draw this understanding that, okay... Although this space is about decentralization, there probably is a a hand-holding space as well where people can work with various trusted providers as well, in addition to being able to use the assets natively. And then they have a choice of this spectrum of centralized trusted providers to fully decentralized, build your own wallet yourself, right? All of those and everything in between.
1: It's interesting because I know there are folks out there who are asking the question, is community sourcing investigations like a good policy? I think the answer there really is uh, it's helpful, but no. I think to your point, Jack, in, in part, you need to do your own investigation. You need to have your own practices. You need to have your own controls in order to ensure that you're protecting your assets, but also that you're you're learning about the risks. So I, I, I think it all starts with education. I think a lot of the value around these types of events is that it gets people to think or engage more deeply. And then for those who are uh, looking to do anything of of scale or from a personal perspective, have uh, I I guess I would say a a bias towards ensuring they have adequate risk controls in place. This helps inform you because you better appreciate the attack vectors that can be exploited. But ultimately, I think you need, you can't rely on the community. Community can be a source, but it shouldn't be the primary source.
2: That's actually a great segue. Uh, Community is a great segue to our next story, which we want to cover, which is uh, the bridge hack should we talk about it please yep. all right so so uh so there was another bridge hack last week no surprises uh and so the bridge that specifically got targeted was the nomad bridge which was a way to move your assets between ethereum and other evm compatible chains on on Polkadot and cosmos so specifically uh, moonbeam and EVM OS. now what's really interesting about this hack was that this was the first decentralized cloud loot, right? So get it, it's like the first decentralized hack. So, um, so the bridge made a smart contract upgrade on June 21st, which made the hack possible. The underlying issue was that zero was set acceptable on the contract, which meant that any invalid message was fine and users could make an invalid message and take money out from the contract. The interesting thing is that the hacker did not drain all the funds in one go, but instead uh, the hacker decided to take a a part of the 190 million, which pretty much led to anyone simply copying and pasting the transaction data and adding their public address to get funds. Lots of people drained the funds together and performed uh, a truly decentralized hack.
3: Is this the uh, first instance of white hat hackers actually hacking and stealing funds to safeguard them for a moment?
2: Oh, uh, that's actually happened a lot of times before. So white hat hackers are typically, uh, so so for those of you who do not know, black hat hackers are the bad guys. White hat hackers are pretty much people who try to hack into systems and then they return the money. And I think so far, 35 million uh, from the Nomad Bridge has been returned by the white hat hackers. But it was really interesting. I I know Nomad put out a blog post. Uh, They gave an update on how the founders are working with TRM Labs and law enforcement to recover more. And uh, it just goes on to show how risky cross-chain bridges are, right?
3: And it does feel like, when was the last time that the market had soured during a massive, you know, a very large substantial hack? You know, this is nearly 200 million we've seen in the past, you know, things like wormhole were able to be backstopped by, you know, the companies that were sort of working behind the scenes to help them out. And they had a lot at stake. And so it was in their incentive to do so. And they had the capital to do so. But in, you know, in a case like this, you know, market sours and it's not like everybody maybe isn't going to be made whole here. It's kind of a bit of a different story. It felt like before you didn't have bailouts in the sense of like governments stepping in. You had bailouts in the sense of corporations that back some of those projects stepping in. But do those types of bailouts happen uh, during a market where you know capital is more scarce? I don't know if they do.
2: Yeah, I think we'll see that in time. Because uh, like you mentioned before, um, I mean, wormhole backed by a jump. Uh, Axie got saved by finance and Nomad is also heavily backed by VCs. So, uh, so I think it's a, it's a, we'll see how this progresses. But what I want to also focus on is that uh, essentially this Nomad bridge was led to like a, a slow bleeding of, of funds. So typically whenever there's a, there's a hack, it's usually three to four transactions and it's super quick. This uh, bridge was hacked for two and a half hours by 375 addresses. Which is pretty crazy, and the, the funniest part is that there were some people who had their public addresses fully doxxed. So I knew that this—I know that this public address belongs to ABC—and they were also still participating in the hack uh, without realizing that you know they are—they are pretty much well known. Like we know who they are. So that was really funny to me.
1: I mean, I—I I was just taking a quick uh, scan of Twitter because I had been following the story. And one of the folks from, uh, from Nomad Bridge had put out saying that um, as of yesterday, they had recovered over 35 million and were working to try and maximize funds recovery, working with law enforcement and, uh, and another provider of, of these forensic services. So, you know, it, it is interesting because unlike in the traditional financial services, you can trace all of these transactions to specific addresses. And part to your point, sometimes those addresses get doxed, and then you can actually identify or have a high probability of being able to identify transactions associated with them uh, from that point forward. So um, I, I personally just find it very intriguing in that you have this concept of the white hat hacker who wants to go in and drain value in order to save it. And you know, I, I wonder at some point. Uh, how does one identify themselves as a white hat versus a black hat hacker? <laughs> now, <laughs> okay. That's a really interesting question. Are you uh, a if black you hat hacker time. until you're doxed, and then you become a white hat hacker? <laughs> give it back. Like, what is that? Uh, you know, I, I. It's just one of those amazing, interesting aspects of the, the crypto ecosystem.
3: Yeah, and and to the point of the project, right? Uh, a cross chain bridge. How much or what percentage of of hacks have taken place on cross-chain infrastructure. Like, I feel like the vast majority are in cross-chain. And I think people would throw their hands up uh, if they you know, don't spend enough time in the space and just say, well, why does anyone care about it? But I think that's the biggest thing if we're moving towards something of a, a multi-chain world with different ecosystems, to be able to connect them is like one of the biggest fundamental problems that's really hard to solve, as evident by hundreds of millions that have been exploited over the past you know, couple of
1: years. That, that interoperability is huge, right? Part of them, we talk about it all the time. How can you safely do that? And there, there are different strategies and, and we'll dive into some of them in, in the coming weeks, but I think that's one of the biggest opportunities for the blockchain ecosystem is to try and solve that in a, um, in a secure fashion where you have the ability to take advantage of all that the, blockchains have to offer while still limiting some of that cross-chain risk?
2: Yeah. So, so Nomad Bridge um, technically relied on optimistic bridges. Uh, and so it just goes on to show, coming back to your point, that having highly complex uh, bridges with highly complex smart contracts means more chances of buggy code, right? I believe that cross-chain world, is it's going to take a while before we actually are truly interoperable between blockchains. Uh, and uh, I think IBC technology, which is inter-blockchain communication, which uh, uh, came out of the Tendermint protocol, is actually a pretty good alternative, uh, which is relatively more secure, in my opinion. And um, I think time will tell if, uh, if these complex bridges win or something more native, more close to metal, uh,
1: basically works out. There's so much to learn and there's so much opportunity.
3: Do we want to touch the the ETH fork proof of work or do we want to save that for next week? Because it's a longer topic. I think
2: it's a juicy story. Let's save that for next week. <laughs> and it's also a story happening now, like as we speak. So uh, I'll, I'll wait it out.
1: Parth, just give us the 30 second TLDR. What, what's actually happening? So essentially you have a proof of
2: work chain and then you have a proof of stake chain and they are merging. But blockchains are like cockroaches, right? So they never die. So even if the 99.9% community decides that they wanna do proof of stake, you still have that one person who still wants to stay on proof of work. And there's a huge incentive for miners to stay on proof of work. So we'll see how those play out. But essentially a lot of of these DeFi protocols will have to make major changes and will have to make official allegiance on what chain they support. So so for example, even a centralized exchange like Poloniex said that they will support proof of work chain as well um and so yeah so it's a, it's a it's a work in progress story so
1: yeah let's cover it next week there's lots for us to dig into and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to spend more time talking about that subject next week i want to thank everybody for joining us today and i uh, hope you have a great week bye Bye guys.
4: digital assets are speculative and highly volatile can become illiquid at any time And are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets, nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country, where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation, persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.